Welcome to another episode of the New York Information Security Meetup, and I have the great pleasure to introduce Alex Ryan, who's a senior cybersecurity incident response uh, instructor for Areta Incident Response. Is that, is that how you pronounce the company name? Did I do Arete. Job? Arete. Sorry, I apologize. I think I asked you that a couple times, and I'm sure they're not the only one. Thanks for uh, helping me out with this. So, Alex, um, awesome to have you today. I've I've talked to a lot of people that uh, work um, in the incident response uh, domain, but you're the first instructor. So why don't we first, maybe we can jump into that, uh, you know, your background and so on. But before we jump into that, why do we need an instructor? You know, can people just learn on like on job training uh, to, to, uh, to do this well? Or is it something that uh, requires a lot of, uh, you know, hands-on knowledge? So for me, the, the point of training is the acceleration. So can they learn on the job? Yes, absolutely. Um, but it's going to be, I believe, at a slower pace than when you have an instructor there to ramp them up more quickly. Um, and then also as a business scales, you need to make sure that people have the same level of skills so that you can provide a consistent level of service to your customers. And if you are unsure if somebody has maybe gaps in their knowledge or gaps in their experience, um, you know, you're putting yourself at a risk from a, a business perspective that they may not provide the level of service, you know, that, that you expect and that your customer expects. So really training is a way to get people up to speed more quickly and then also to ensure that the service that you're delivering is consistent. It yeah, also that... makes your folks more confident, right? <laughs> they know what the hell they're doing. Um, and that confident people make happy people, right? <laughs> so do your folks a, a, a favor, right? Make them feel comfortable with their jobs and confident in what they're doing. They'll give better customer service. They'll be happier people. And, you know, happy people are be is better business. Yeah, I love that. And by the way, this conversation is completely unscripted. So... You know, whatever I tackle Alex with, she's doing a great job answering these. So uh, just as an FYI. So, Alex, let's get Sorry, started. Sorry, does it sound scripted? <laughs> <laughs> no, it doesn't. You're doing okay, a great good. job. Um, so let's jump into a bit of a, your background, you know, how you started in cybersecurity. You have an extensive background, and I'd love to, to kind of dig into that and see how you progress yourself to become a, a such a prominent figure in the cybersecurity space. So why don't we, um, why don't we start? At the beginning, like, you know, maybe like what did you take in college and what was kind of your first role when you uh, when you graduated? Uh, so, you know, whenever you know, go back to training, um, one of the things that I truly believe is that what someone needs to succeed in cybersecurity is tenacity and curiosity. So, um, you know, where did I start? Well, I suppose <laughs> when I got here um, on the planet, um, I've always been wanting to know what's next, right? I want to know how it works. I want to fix it, right, if it's broken. So um, when I was in university, the way that I made money was I would flip cars. So I would buy a car that was pretty ratty and, you know, maybe from someone that didn't know its value. Um, I would clean it up, clean the engine, do the upholstery, um, flip it and then and send it out, right? But the best way to make money on that is to fix it myself. So whether or not I was changing the oil or doing the brakes or 
um, you know, I didn't really do clutches. I would take that into the garage, but you know, you have a relationship with someone. So there's relationships with your vendors, right? Um, to get it for a cheaper price. So um, I've always been fixing and I really enjoy it when I fix a problem for a person and it makes them happy. So um, I'm curious. Uh, I, you know, am willing to go to kind of crazy lengths to make something work. And then I'm super happy when other people are happy and they're like, oh my God, it finally works. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Um, so in uh, university, I took uh, two degrees, one in philosophy and one in economics. And the common ground for that is game theory. So I took a lot of symbolic logic when I was uh, taking my philosophy degree. And, you know, I'm not going to say that that's equivalent to programming, but it's a way of thinking, a systematic way of thinking that you have to have to learn. And so um, I worked in a lab where we were, uh, some folks were doing their master's thesis. And so I worked with them to build a network, networking environment and write the programming because we were doing um, a test to see why people bet the way that they do. So we had people come in and they did, you know, we, we put them into certain scenarios. They had a certain amount of money, right? They got to keep their money at the end of the experiment. And so watching people uh, make these decisions also under stress, right? We brought in stress factors. So it was a lot of fun. We gathered the information through the network and the programs that we had. We analyzed it and came up with our great um, tested our thesis, our hypothesis, and uh, and came up with an answer. So, and then when I got out, it's you know it's tough to hang up a shingle as a philosopher these days. It's a tough market. So, um, I decided that I needed to do something else to eat. That seemed like a pretty compelling uh, use case. So, I ended up working at a law firm implementing their um, their network. So to give you an idea, we were moving them from Token Ring to Ethernet. Uh, we had an OS2 warp database. We had um, Windows 311 as our server, and I was a Novell certified engineer. So I think that you... gives you an idea of my vintage. Right? <laughs> you look great, Alex. Uh, <laughs> I, uh... <laughs> That's kind of you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so how does a, a philosophy major know so much about networks back in the day where you know it's not like today like today there's youtube videos how to's uh you know there's you know there's uh boot camps there's a bunch of stuff that's available for you but back in the day uh none of this was available so how did you get like the first position where you were able to to get, have like a hands-on experience and help you know assist that le legal firm so back in those days i think that there was a lot more forgiveness right that this was a new type of work. So there was more latitude that you could go in and break things and make mistakes. There was more tolerance, right? But now it's a more mature uh, profession. And so people have the expectation that you'll walk in, you'll know what you're doing. Um, everything will work the first time that you can give timelines and, you know, um, assured outcomes. And so back then, um, there wasn't that kind of pressure. So you could walk in and you could make mistakes. You could say, oh, I still got to fiddle with it. it. Might be a couple more days, things like that. So um, I think that there was just more um, mercy from the uh, from the customer side at that time. 
So yeah, that's why I would say that I was able to go in and get hands-on experience, right, without trashing my career and people um, understanding that I didn't know what I was doing, right? So, and then from there, you've you've done you know various different roles, and and I like like the 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 depth and breadth of your of your experience. So if you've uh, you know looking at here, you were a manager for information security, um, you're responsible for network engineering for product management. Um, you know, you, you've done it a lot and, uh, and then you, uh, managed to get into, uh, incident response. How did you move laterally from all those different roles like from that was, you know, I find today, maybe there's, maybe the answer is the same as before. It was, this was more leniency back then, uh, to move. Um, and you tell me, but if that's the case, because today I think a lot of people, once, once they get into a particular role in cybersecurity, they have often difficulties, uh, you know, changing roles. Yeah, and then they have to change jobs, right, to change roles. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's super unfortunate. So um, for me, what I did and in my career, I've worked mainly with startups. And um, I worked for some larger companies, and that's where I learned my lesson that I should not work for larger companies because they want you to stay in your lane. And so, you know, for me, with my curiosity, I want to know how everything works. I want to know how it got here and where it's going, because that gives me a better idea of what I should be doing, right? If you just hand me a task and I don't have any context, you just say, just go do this. You know, that means that I can't use my creativity or bring you ideas of different ways of doing it, optimizing it, making it better, using new technology, right? So, you know, I would always ask, you know, why? Why are we doing this? Where is it going? Hey, what about this thing? So I would say that, you know, for those folks who are currently pigeonholed, right, you know, to the tolerance of your audience, ask why. Say, well, you know, where's it going? What's the point? Find the person at the other end of whatever it is that you're doing and ask them what it is that they want, right? Because oftentimes we try and solve business problems with technology, and if we find the end customer and find out what they're trying to get, you can walk it back and you might find that we're actually not delivering what it is that the end user ultimately wants. So that's one way of within the context of your job to say, um, I want to learn more, right? It gives you, it gives you a, a reasonable excuse to start asking these questions in a way that people don't feel threatened um, to, to sort of learn. And then that expands your uh, your knowledge. Sometimes you get to have these conversations with other folks that gives you their context. And then if you want to move to these other places, you've already built that relationship. You already have their context and you can sort of parlay that a little bit, you know, to go over to another group. So that would be my general recommendation. But working for smaller companies, you don't have to stay in your lane and they're willing to let you go and do things that aren't necessarily in your you know, silo of responsibility. And that's really important to me uh, because I feel um, very stifled if someone's like, well, you're the networking person, just make the network work. And I'm like, <laughs> well, hold on. Uh, you know, the network is pretty complicated and lots of different ways that we can do something, but to optimize it for your scenario, right? I need to really understand the technology up and downstream. And in a small company, People are very much more willing to have those conversations and don't feel threatened by the fact that you're 
asking about how their technology works, a lot of people feel like you're challenging them. Um, so that can be a little tricky, but, you know, start with relationships, get to know the person, find out their hobbies, their kids, whatever, right? Become non-threatening. And then you can start having those technology uh, conversations in a way that, that doesn't scare them. Yeah, amazing. So, uh, you know, that leads me kind of the next question. So just listening to what you just said, there's a couple of things that kind of, you know, popped to, to my mind is one is, as you mentioned, you were very curious. That's what got you to like the first couple of roles. And then you kept going with that curiosity to advance yourself and moving to different roles and becoming uh, more proficient. But then you also strike me as a very much a people person where you, just as you develop your technical skills in parallel, you almost, you know, you develop like your people skill where you figure out, you know, what makes people tick and how to, you know, sometimes uh, overcome difficulties in the technical realm by dealing with people a certain way. So you have that kind of rare combination between between the technical and kind of the people skill. Do you find that today's, um, you know, just in your role, do you use more of the kind of the technical side of the house or equally uh, important to have those people skills that really, we, and we call those soft skills that are not taught as I guess in school and maybe, maybe because you're a philosophy major, maybe you had that kind of, you know, uh, underlying background. Uh, but do you find today's, uh, it's more important to, to be, you know, super technical or also a people person at, at the, uh, you know, management level? I think it depends on where you want to go. Right. So, you know, we only have a certain number of days in our lives. We only have a certain number of resources and waking hours. So my question would be, where are you trying to go? Um, and then that creates what kind of wheels you put on your car, right? <laughs> to drive you to where you're going. Um, if you want to do you stay think, on the- Alex, do you think that, not to cut you off, but do you think that people know always like where they want to go or just sometimes they're just being, they get a, you know, they drift to uh, to a particular role and find themselves into the next role and the next role? That would be unfortunate if they were doing that. Mm-hmm. It's definitely a tactic right? A way, but do it consciously, right? Say, hey, you know what? I'm really not sure. So I'm just going to kind of hang out and drift and, you know, but, but make that a conscious choice. Don't just be like, oh, I'm just going to go, I don't know, completely ignore my job, ignore the fact that I have a career and I'm just going to go, you know, play video games most of the time. And and I apologize about video game players. I don't mean that in a derogatory sense. Um, <laughs> It's fine. But, you know, if you are drifting, if you are trying to figure out what you're what you want to do, make sure that you're exposing yourself to, to opportunities that help you figure out what you want to do. Don't just drift aimlessly, even within the idea of I don't know what I want to do, so I'm just gonna hang out. There's still structure in that. You can still say okay, I kind of think I should be in this area, but I'm not sure, right? Like maybe threat intelligence, you know, is interesting to me, Be or maybe malware reverse engineering. So funny story, I went to DEF CON um, this last um, one in Vegas, right? And I took some, man, I just loaded up on reverse engineering because I was convinced that that's where I needed to be in my life, right? And let me tell you, I do not want to do malware reverse engineering, right? Very clear. But, Why? Sounds fun. 
<laughs> yeah, so I gave it was uh yeah, they were talking about Golang and the next, you know, generation of attacks coming in. Um, you know, because uh you know, the Go language is everywhere. And how do you use that, right? Obviously, uh, <laughs> to nefarious purposes. You know, I'm just learning so that I can defend my environment. Um, so, you know, I even though I was a bit drifty, you know, I went and I took the opportunity to find out if I liked something or not. You know, and DEF CON is, is 300 bucks. So, I mean, I'm not saying go take a SANS course in reverse engineering, right? I'm saying there are cost-effective solutions out there to to figure out what it is that you want to do. And did you ever consult mentors, peers? Do you have like a, a group of people or people that you, you know, talk shop with or ask advice? Or do you, kind of the reverse question to that, do you give that advice to, to others today? Um, I ask usually my direct, direct managers, I ask them to be my mirror. So um, sometimes I have a difficult time seeing myself, right? And so I ask them, I say, what do you see that brings me joy? What do you see me be particularly good at doing? Um, and then I have to trust them, right? That they're able to see me clearly too and that they don't have their own agendas or whatnot. But um, typically I've had good relationships with my managers, my direct managers. And so that's a technique that I ask is just say, hey, what is it that you see in me that is, you know, um, a strength? So uh, I don't have official mentors. I don't have, uh, you know, particularly people that give me advice on things. I know it, that doesn't sound good like I should, but I don't know. I just no, don't. it's it's perfectly honest. And listen, <laughs> we're so busy. Not not everybody is, you know, has time to, to deal with this uh, in and um, and there's no expectations. You know, it's it's funny because, you know, you don't have to have you know ten thousand followers on Instagram. You know, it's, it sounds maybe you have only a hundred. It doesn't mean that you're you know exactly. So we're you're perfectly fine. I think we're all fine. You don't have to necessarily have a, you know ten mentees and ten people that you consult with. Um, I was just curious about that because you seem to have uh, quite insight in terms of of um, of how to take chances in your career path and what to do to to be successful let me just dive into in particular you know how did you uh dive into the incident response realm because that's a that's a very niche kind of area within cybersecurity, just like reverse engineering you know so did you just stumble upon it did you manage to get into kind of the first role into that or you know tell me a bit about what what was it like yeah, so I went in the um, late 90s during the dot-com um, boom, uh, Cisco firewalls were discovered <laughs> and everybody wanted one. And so I came into incident response from a defense position, right? So um, I was implementing firewalls and then went into intrusion detection and, you know, then endpoint detection and all of those kinds of things. And, and then, of course, you instantly go into the, well, what are these machines telling me anyway? Oh, that doesn't look right. So maybe I should go figure out what's happening, right? And so that is your basis for incident response. You have to know what the hell the machine is doing and what a baseline and what normal looks like so that when something abnormal comes in, right, you can tell 
um, you have your indicators of, of, yeah, that's not quite right. And then you go and investigate it. Well, guess what you're doing? You're doing incident response, but it's at the beginning stage, right? So 98% perhaps of the anomalies that you investigate come to nothing. But then you've got your 2%, right, where you have to go and do something about it, right? You need to figure out where they went, what did they do, how do I get them out, how do I make sure I've got them out, right? Update my machines with my new signatures to make sure that I've kept them out. Those, How did they get in? Let me fix that, right? What is that? This is a natural progression of putting in defenses, knowing what your machines do, understanding what uh, a baseline of normal looks like, finding the anomalies, and then going figuring out what the hell's going on. Um, that's all the preliminary of incident response. So one of the things that uh, was always interesting to me was actually a couple things in incident response, right? We were afraid. We were afraid to call something an incident. We would do an investigation, right? And then it would come to that thing and we'd be like, oh, dude, we have to ring the bell, right? We have to report to our manager. Our manager's going to report to the VC. So, and, you know, shit's going to go down, right? You pull out the incident response book, you start going it's, through it, you panic, <laughs> you're like, oh my God, Alex, dinner, I'll see you in a week. That's um, true. And also, the SOC was not even a thing back then. You know, the Security Operations Center, people just did stuff. You know, yeah, I think okay, it's in line so to I'm, what you mentioned. Yeah, I'm old, but I have worked recently. So, um, this was two years ago, right? That I was a incident responder and uh, we knew someone was in our network and we didn't want to ring the alarm bell because it was going to cause a shit storm. And we were afraid that it would end up being a false positive. And then everybody was going to be like, oh, goddamn security people, right? Like, there's such chicken littles, you know, about the, you know, the sky is falling and then it turned out to be nothing. And then you have a hard time getting people engaged the next time, right? You have your next yes. investigation. You're Flying like, yeah, the, right. I'm pretty sure. But then people are like, oh, gosh, it's the security people again. Everybody get on the global, you know, incident response bridge. So, you know, there's this tension between I don't want to be the, the girl that cried wolf. But on the other hand, dude, like there's seriously something wrong here and I really need your help to gather the information to prove, right, my hypothesis. So, um, how do you, yeah, I'm guilty yeah. of it too. I didn't want to call it an incident. Well, <laughs> but that's, but that's the thing too, right? There's so many false positives, right? The, you know, our systems are, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're spinning out alerts left right and center depending on what type of systems you have you might have thousands of them right so how do you then figure out which one of those thousand there's probably three of these that really matter and i know it, there's a bit of a magic uh associated with it right there is a magic um Unfortunately, well, okay, so I'm going to take the Pollyanna view, okay, I'm going to try and walk on the sunny side of the street here. Um, those 98% of false positives train you to find the 2%, right? So because you go through all of those 98% of your false positives and you figure out what your machines are doing, right? So you're like, oh, okay, wait, that's AD replication, that's not somebody trying to do you know, authentication to my, you know, Active Directory 36,000 times, right? 
um, oh, that's an application that's constantly trying to do authentication. I need to tune the application, right? Somebody turns, changes their password and then their mobile you know, phone is still trying to authenticate. So now you have like crazy number of authentications. So all of those investigations train you to figure out what is abnormal and what you need to pay attention to. It's painful, it's a grind, but you are learning. It's not a waste. I'm pretty passionate about that. <laughs> yeah. Why, why, you know, why isn't it more automation in the space? I mean, it seems to be like a lot of software companies out there that are coming back and say, okay, you know, we have a system that allows you to diminish these, but yet all of it failed and it's still not a, you know, enough, like, I guess, say AI, if to use that term, a machine learning systems out there that allows to really diminish those, those uh, false positives. I don't know why it's failed. Um, it's funny, I was talking to someone about this last night because they were saying, aren't you afraid that you're gonna lose your job as an incident responder because all of this automation and AI is coming? And I was like, yeah, no, not really. Because ultimately the human is the most creative uh, machine that we have, the most creative element. And you know, we say things like, oh, the threat you know, landscape is constantly changing and new techniques and, and tactics. And I'm like, yeah, that's exactly right. And AI is going to uh, work on historical data, right? It's going to make um, maps of what has happened, but it doesn't necessarily take into account the creativity of the human. It's going to make something completely bizarre that no one predicted, right? And then that's the talent of the of the threat actor, right? I mean, these people are creative. I've seen some stuff and I'm like, wow, hats off to you. That was pretty awesome, right? So let's talk about that. So first of yeah. all, so I love that. So you, I was about to ask you whether the last incident responder has already been born. And the answer is obviously what you just said is no, that's right. not the case. And I, I have my own theory and just talking to so many people about what I just asked you is that, as you mentioned, one, I think it's, you're spot on, you know, the humans are very, very creative. In fact, that's the next evolution. So yeah, there's a lot of menial, uh, you know, tasks that are going to be automated, right? But somebody who has that creativity, both good and bad, will always be employable. So that's kind of the way the future is going. But the other answer to that is that there's not enough, when, when you're looking at, um, you know, I guess incident across the wire, there's not enough differentiation between all the, you know, the, the, the incidents. It's almost like, you know, you can't determine if so, it's not somebody who's wearing gray jacket in a, in a sea of, of black jackets. It's, for if you look at the incidents, it's more somebody wearing a gray jacket looks almost black in a sea of of black jacket. This is why it's so difficult uh, to. Uh, there's not enough of, of these anomalies to even even you know this large data sets and machine learning and AI and so on to really create automation. So I think that's kind of another uh, theory to to whether why um, you know all those machines and all these you know automation has really failed so far, uh, but. Let's let's chat about the what you just mentioned about these uh you know how creative is creative. If you have some stories about that, without mentioning the terms and the uh, you know like the the details, that'd be great. Yeah, I'm <laughs> yeah, sure you have some cool stories. Lose your job, yeah. Just FYI. <laughs> oh yeah, so both working on that incident with silly Bob, Joe Bobbitt. 
you know, yeah, no, don't do that. Um, some really creative things that I've seen. Um, or even in general, like some trends that are creative. It doesn't have to be a single incident. Like, you know, just maybe like some creativity that like in, in methods and stuff like that that you've seen, you know, in, in your line of work. Um, yeah, it, when I was working at um, a company that had very uh, important intellectual property, um, this is so boring and I'm so sorry. And everybody's going to be like, tell me something fancy. And, and that's the terrible thing about being an incident responder is usually what you find is through dr true drudge, grind, crap, right? Um, to find that golden nugget. So, you know, when I talk about tenacity, I mean, you got to have it. Um, so the email filters, and I worked with a fellow by the name of Ryan Gurr, and um, I am going to call him out by name because he's super crazy. Um, he would put these email filters in um, and would just pick through piles of false positives. But those filters found so many attacks so many, you know, and, and again, it's not sexy. Um, and I'm sorry, you asked for something creative and it's not very creative, but um, how they would obfuscate their code or how they would obfuscate um, the types of, you know, it was um, when you use like Cyrillic or you use some of the kind of um, character that looks like an English character, but really isn't, um, we saw a lot of those, obviously targeting to the, the VIPs, especially the human resources and accounting and things like that, um, where they're trying to get into, especially to financial data or just people who aren't used to practicing um, good security hygiene, right? That's just not their focus in life. And then, right, they compromise and then use that to hopscotch over to something else. So um, I would say that just in the email filters and the use of um, using other characters to, you know, look like something that's in English but isn't um, was really effective. It was really yeah. effective. Yeah, and it's amazing that even today, right, that uh, email is one of the, you know, the cardinal attack factors, you know, when we're talking about, uh, you know, infiltration into the organization using, uh, you know, combination of social engineering, uh, you know, various different methods to bypass the, uh, the email filters and and so on. So it's very very tough. Those phishing emails, spear phishing, and so on. It's very very tough to to uh, um, to detect. Um, what uh, what makes and I think you touch upon some some of the some of the um, the attributes. What well, what makes a a good incident responder? Like from a from a you know qualities perspective, um, you know, like how would you define a great incident responder? So you know when to, when you go to DEFCON or some kind of capture the flag uh, type of uh, event, people don't work alone. People work in groups, right? Um, and that's because everybody has a particular specialty. And um, an attack doesn't isolate itself to one particular domain of knowledge or technology, right? It crosses all of them, right? And that's actually the point. You know, remember when we would watch these old, you know, crime shows and it's like you would say, oh, the state police, they didn't talk to each other, right? You hit that hit that state line and no information went between those two domains. And you're like, oh, that's so stupid. 
it's a little bit like that in incident response, right? You need to work in a team environment, right? Definitely have your depth, definitely know your technology, but work with your team. And when you find something that's a little weird, go over and start talking to it, you know, as a group. Because not only do you have like the technology, you know, you're looking at the life cycle of the attacks going to go across technology and people say, well, let me check this other thing. And then you get some correlation. Right. So but the other thing is that, you know, interacting with other humans um, sparks our imagination, you know, uh, working with the information that isn't just visual and in your mind and on your, you know, on your typewriter. Oh, my God. On your keyboard. Right. It's. um you start interacting with the information, you know, in a verbal way, maybe in a proprioceptive way, right? You start walking around and talking to each other. You go over to someone else's desk, right? You're interacting with the data in a new and novel way when you discuss that with other people, right? And there's lots of science around this that supports it. I won't bore you to death with that. But interact with your team. Discuss your ideas with someone else. Don't just isolate yourself. Don't try and be the hero. That's another, right, archetype that we see in the incident response, right? They want to own that data. They want to be the one that found it. Um, they want to be the hero and get the, the gold star, right? And that might work. You know, I'm not saying it doesn't work. Sure can. Um, but I don't know that you're working towards the greater good if you do that. You're not going to be as effective uh, for the greater good. And, and uh, no, that's a great answer. So, and then in terms of, of, um, you know, success criteria, how would you know that, uh, you know, somebody that if you trained is, is successful? Like what is, do you have like, um, you know, cause I'm sure that you, you make them go through, you know, almost like a mini gauntlet kind of thing where they have to, uh, we do. We have efficient. a capstone project. Yes. Yeah. So, so then towards the end, what's the end result? Like how do they come out on the other side? <laughs> you got to keep your head in the middle of the pressure. You can't lose your shit, right? You can't shut down. Um, you can't let it get to you. Um, when we're under stress, we revert back to our most basic programming, right? Um, and so for some people, that's to ghost, <laughs> right? This is, I'm not liking this. I'm just going to go and tunnel vision on my little task, right? And I'll be successful if I complete that task and then I'll come back, right? Just because they can't take it. And that's not like me saying that you're a wimp or that you're weak or no, that's not true because you can learn how to deal with that stressful situation, right? So just, just learn how to do it is what I'm saying. Um, just be aware, right? That you're starting to shut down and freak out. Isn't um, it like the, in military terms, like a muscle memory where they, they teach, um, you know, to, to, because you're right at, at time of stress, you revert back to things you, you know, in most, some of it is unconsciously, like you just do it almost like, uh, you know, automata, right? Kind of like, yeah. so you know, so I'm assuming that's, that's similar. Yeah. So in incident response, when I do like a disaster recovery plan or an incident response plan, one of the most important things that I talk about is having a communications lead. It is not a person who is doing stuff, right? Not a doer, a communicator, because who are you going to have coming into your office? The manager, the you know, the CISO, I mean, like, right, God and everybody's going to turn up and start asking questions. And if you're doing an investigation, you can't have a high interrupt environment, right? And dealing with those people, those people are under stress and they're bringing stress into your environment, right? You need to have a buffer. 
someone who's collecting all of the information and can give that information to the people incoming and you can let your people work, right? Let them focus, let them talk to each other, let them have a consistent right, uh, thought process, right? Because it's a it's long and complicated thought. Um, and I just can't have someone coming into my cubicle every five minutes asking me what's an update. I don't know. Maybe if you left, then I would be able to find something out. But it's uh, tough. Alex, like, does they want an update? You know, it's just. I swear uh, to God. I swear to God. Yeah. So I always have a communicator who can be the buffer between, you know, so obviously you're technical enough uh, to understand exactly what is going on. So you're a practitioner, right? But your role in the incident response is to communicate out so that uh, you can be that puffer, buffer and let your folks work. So do you uh, do you teach that part, you know, how to get into, you know, how to communicate to to the you know powers that be? And because you have to communicate not just to the to the, you know, to the executives, but also the people around you like this incident response touches every area of the company. So. There might you might have to deal with people from the different business areas and so on. Is this something you teach as well? No. Um, you just let I, them. I you should know. though. Actually, it's a really <laughs> good idea uh, because right the the learning path is to understand your customer, know your customer, right? So um, if you have someone coming in from manufacturing, what does he want? Because that is going to affect or should influence what you're going to tell him. So when he comes in, what is he interested in? He's in, interested in 100% uptime. All he wants to know is when are you going to get my line working again, right? Shut up about forensics. Shut up about attribution of the threat actor. Shut up about talking to the FBI. I don't care. I want my line up. So when someone comes in and they're asking you questions during an incident response, understand what it is that they want from you. What is what is their how are they affected by the incident um, and give them the information that is pertinent to them. Otherwise you're just going to frustrate them. Yeah. And I love how you answer, like, you know, you are so passionate about this. Would you recommend people get into incident response? Um, you know, I, I, I think you're a little biased, but you've, you've done different, various different roles and you obviously like what you do. If somebody's doing like, you know, network management or, other areas in, of, of cybersecurity, uh, would you recommend getting into? I mean, it's a, it's a really, there's almost so much demand for it right now. Uh, it is lack of, you know, if, if you look at the some job boards, there's thousands of unfilled, um, you know, security analyst positions, you know, specifically for, for SOC and incident response teams. Uh, would you recommend for people to, uh, to join? Hell yes. Why wouldn't you? Oh my God, this is the most exciting thing. Oh my God. I always tell my kids, I'm like, why aren't you doing this? Do you not understand how much fun this is? Like, where in the world do you get to go? I mean, you're sitting in a in a in a but career. It's, it's like, stressful, Alex. What? It's stressful. Like you, like you said this to people. Oh. Like turn around and they end up, um, you know, end up uh, just doing, you know, just a task that they know and they they shut down. That's what you said a minute ago. <laughs> you know, um, everybody loves. SEAL teams, right? I don't know what it is that people love about SEAL teams, but everybody uses the analogy. So I assume there is some affinity to it. And so the reason that I think people use this analogy is because they're heroes. They go and do something exceptional that is for the greater good, right? So 
when <clears throat> we talk about going into incident response and it's stressful, yeah, it is, but you're saving the world. Like, do you not get that? Someone is trying to take down our middle uh, layer economy, right? When you, so I work in ransomware at the moment, right? So you look at the number of businesses that go out, you know, that, that go out of business, right? Um, after a ransomware attack, right? Oh, like 70% of them after a year of mm -hmm. suffering an incident response and having to pay a ransomware go out of business. You're going to have to believe this. Fuck you. <laughs> no, you're no, not going to come in here and, yeah, no, you are trying to wipe out my country, right? No, you're not allowed. It's not okay. Yeah, so and it's true. Is, it's a matter of national security, right? Absolutely we, we, it is, right? We're at war. And so um, it is for the greater good. So, yeah, come on, join the SEAL team. <laughs> uh, what's the, uh, what's, do you uh, hose people down after they end up, uh, you know, finishing the, what's the kind of initiation? Do they have to, you know, kiss a cod and drink a, a you know, very hard liquor? Or what's the initiation after they finish the course? Or you, do you have one? Or is that not a good idea? I think you should have. Um, I'm not a big drinker because I feel like so crappy afterwards. Um, and I think that might be a little bit of a hangover from the bro culture. Sorry. Um, but we definitely get together as a group to de-stress, right? No one's going to understand your context and incident response like an incident responder. Um, and so we sit around and we tell our war stories and we build a sense of camaraderie that we won. And... I think that, you know, veterans perhaps from the military do this as well, right? Um, they get around and they tell their war stories and it's a way of decompressing and building camaraderie after something that's very stressful. So, you know, do you have a beer while you're doing that? Sure, whatever. But really for me, it's about um, restoring a sense, right? Coming down. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. It sounds like fun. And they, like they, what I mentioned about the hosing is like from a reference, like when you finish like uh, some uh, pilot courses, they, after the first flight, they, they hose people down. Like that's like, yeah, the, we do. Uh, we have a happy hour, right? We have a, <laughs> um, you know, and there are, there are lots of cultures that we're training and not all of them drink and not all of them yeah, of course. decompress the same way that we do. Um, so really it's that um, sense of being a cohort that sense of camaraderie, um, because then you've built the relationships, right? And so that student is much more likely to reach out to another student with a question, um, you know, because if you have a question and you're not sure who to ask, you usually just shut it down internally and don't go ask the question, and that's a loss, right? So when you go through a capstone and you've won, right, you've uh, you finished it, then uh, yeah, we just decompress together on a, um, a get together graduation type thing. Yeah. And it's awesome. We need more of this in the digital world where we're becoming more distant. I think that the, having that kind of, you know, you know, camaraderie is, is, is something that to, uh, to be, uh, strived for. So Alex, uh, you know, I feel like we can go on and on and on, um, but we're running out of time. What's the easiest way for people to reach out to you for whatever, you know, just to learn a bit more about what you do uh, you know, but what your company does, whatever else uh, may be, what's the easiest way? Um, on LinkedIn is the best way. Just send me a message. Um, I'm 
very passionate that um, if you have tenacity and curiosity, you can learn the technical skills. I believe that 100%. And so if you're a person that is like, I'm not sure if I want to get into this, I majored in liberal arts, right? I did graphic design. I don't care. You know, if you think that you're interested and you think that you have the tenacity and the curiosity for it, come on in. We need you. Come yeah, fight and the you've war. Done You've done uh, quite a, you know, we didn't touch upon that, but you've done quite a, you know, quite a bit of certification. So you've dedicated yourself to learning the technical skill and getting certified. And uh, it is something we we're supposed to talk about, you know, about the certification and value for it. Uh, but you've next definitely time. dedicated next time. next time. We definitely dedicated yourself to uh, to make sure that your your technical skills um, are, uh, you know, on par with the industry standards. At least you prove that's the case. Uh, you know, you have the certification to prove it. And uh, whether the value is there or not, uh, it's debatable, but uh, you have those and you've done a great job at uh, acquiring these. So uh, until then, Alex, thank you very much for joining us today. Much, much appreciated. It's been a real pleasure. And I, I, love, pleasure. Your, I love your enthusiasm. It's, uh, you know, it's infectious. Um, thank you. Contagious, I think that's the word. Thank <laughs> you very much again. And uh, for all those who joined, thank you again. And looking forward to uh, seeing you at the next event. Take care. Bye-bye.